Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash watsonassistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. I'll be one right, friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Investing isn't easy, but it can be a lot easier if you find someone who's willing to walk you through all the arcane terminology and authentic Wall Street gibberish that makes the whole process seem really impenetrable. There's an entire industry of people who earn their living by doing the opposite of that. They want you convinced that investing is too hard. The regular people just can't do it. That the safest thing is to give your money to a professional or stick it in an index fund. The truth is, that's the right call for many of you. And everyone should have some index fund exposure. But if, if you put in the effort, if you do the homework, then I believe you can manage some of that money as well as the pros. The truth is, many of those professionals really, let's just say they're focused on getting your fees. They're more interested in taking your money than making your money. And that's a lot easier if they can keep you ignorant about the market. They're kind of like the Wizard of Oz. They don't want you peeking at the man behind the curtain. They don't want you to understand, because if you did, then maybe you'd take control of your own finances, pick your own stocks, and not pay someone else potentially exorbitant fees to do the things you're perfectly capable of doing yourself. And that's where I come in. I'm pulling back the curtain and explaining everything, because while authentic Wall Street gibberish can sound complex, it's not rocket science or brain surgery. You don't need to go to business school or work in an investment bank to understand it. You can comprehend all the abstruse vocabulary that we throw around as long as you have a translator, a coach like me, who can explain what it all means. Think of me as a defector, someone who played for the other team, managing about $500 million of already rich people's money at that old hedge fund of mine, but who's now playing for you, teaching you how to navigate your way through the minefield of the stock market every weeknight here on Mad Money. All right, forget the Da Vinci Code. Forget Enigma! To be a grand investor, you need to break the Wall Street code, and I'm here to help you crack it. That's why tonight I'm giving you my Wall Street gibberish to plain English dictionary. Consider it a glossary of the most important terms that you absolutely must understand if you're going to actively manage some of your own portfolio. Words and concepts that many people in the financial industry really don't want you to get your head around. Because then you might actually feel more empowered. Empowered enough to pull your money out of their mutual funds or ETFs or stop handing over your fees. Let's start with a couple of extremely important ideas that go uh, we talk about all the time. They go hand in hand. Cyclical and secular. Now, you hear these all the time, right? Yet no one ever seems to explain what they mean, even though they're crucial to the process of picking good stocks. Cyclical has nothing to do with the spin cycle or your washing machine or Wagner's ring cycle. Not my kind of classical music. And secular isn't about the separation of church and state. Oh, and yes, a kudos to the late Louis Rukeyser, who first cracked that cyclical joke. We say a company is cyclical if it needs a strong economy in order to grow. It's it's cyclical because it depends on the business cycle. 
So machinery companies like a Caterpillar and Eaton fall into this category, along with raw materials players like a BHP or a Rio Tinto and commodity chemical companies like the new Dow Chemical or PPG. These cyclical players are indeed hostages, hostages to the vicissitudes of the economy. When the economy heats up, they earn more money and we're willing to pay more for those earnings. But when it slows down, they earn less money and investors pay less for their shares. And that's why they want to sell them, sell them ahead of time. A secular growth company, on the other hand, is one where the earnings keep coming regardless of the economy's overall health. They get anything you eat, drink, smoke, brush your teeth with, use as medication. So you've got consumer staples like a Procter & Gamble or a Colgate, food, General Mills, Kellogg come to mind, drug stocks, I think you're Pfizer, a Merck, a Bruce Mars. These are the classic recession-proof names that tend to outperform whenever the economy hits a rough patch and Wall Street suddenly develops a craving for safe, consistent earnings. You don't stop eating or brushing your teeth just because of recession, or at least I, I hope you don't. What makes the secular versus cyclical distinction so important to you? Why is it the first piece of Wall Street jargon that I'm translating tonight? Because it helps you figure out how much money companies will earn. And because it matters to the big institutional money managers, the guys who have so much money to throw around, that they're buying and selling actually controls the day-to-day action in the market. They decide whether stocks go up or down. The whole hedge fund playbook is about when to buy and sell cyclical stocks or secular ones based on how the global economy is holding up. And this is what drives their decision-making process. Remember, historically, about 50% of the performance of an individual stock comes from its sector, which is just a fancy word for the segment of the economy a stock falls into, like a tech, energy, machinery, healthcare, uh, finance. And when it comes to sectors, much of those moves are driven by whether they fall into the secular growth or secular growth camps. And the cyclical growth camps, by the way, are the ones, again, up and down, secular is this. You've got to know these things. You don't want to own much in the way of cyclicals when the economy seems to be slowing. Those stocks are likely to get crushed because the numbers come down in a recession. You can try to make yourself less cyclical. In recent years, for instance, the railroads have become much better operators. So their earnings don't get hit as hard, even with big revenue shortfalls. But in a real recession, well, you don't want to own their own their stocks. By the same token, when business heats up and the cyclicals are doing well, nobody wants to own a boring, consistent recession-proof secular grower. And you won't make much money in them during those periods either. That's the logic behind another needlessly opaque piece of investing terminology. It's called the rotation, which is when money flows out of one of these groups into the other. Now, this idea is totally antithetical to the brain-dead philosophy of buy and hold that I spend so much time trying to debunk. A zombie ideology that refuses to die even though it's been utterly discredited by the market's performance. You don't want to hold cyclical stocks going into a genuine recession. That's a recipe for disaster. It's always been a recipe for disaster. There's nothing new there. Once you recognize how powerful the secular versus cyclical distinction is, well, then you can see why buy and hold can be, can be just outright silly. If you're planning to own stocks through thick and thin no matter what, then you need to be prepared to lose money in the cyclicals when they're out of favor or tread water in the secular stocks or even have them go down a shade when the cyclicals are roaring. Why take that pain when you can avoid it? Of course, that doesn't mean you should try to game every single rotation. That's too hard. It shouldn't mean you should concentrate all of your capital in the cyclicals or the secular growth names, depending on what's in stock. No, not at all. You always, always, always need to stay diversified. Another important piece of investing vocabulary. It simply means, well, making sure you don't put all of your eggs into one sector basket. You're diversified when you have no more than 20% of your portfolio in any single sector. That way you won't get annihilated if, for example, a rotation takes down all the cyclical stocks because you still have some secular growth names that are holding up much better. 
or even making you money at the same time. Bottom line, investing isn't easy. But it doesn't have to be mystifying or intimidating. You just need to learn the lingo. Know the difference between cyclical and secular growth stocks. Recognize the sector rotation when you see one. And always, always, always stay diversified. Frank in Arizona. Frank! Jim, I bought a large block of stock in a blue-chip company that pays a safe 5% dividend and historically trades in a very narrow range. I bought that stock in four equal block increments, and each purchase I was able to buy at a lower price, always bringing down my average cost. Being somewhat Kramerized, I know that it's wise to reinvest the dividends. The stock has risen $3 above my average cost. If I reinvest the dividends now, it will bump up my average cost, and I don't want to do that. Should I take the dividends in cash? No, in this, in this one particular case, I am, not, I am going to look the other way about raising your uh, basis because I just think that the power of compounding is so fabulous, it transcends even the idea of raising your basis with a buy. Let's go to Sally in Michigan. Sally! Hi there. Hi, Jim. Sally. I'm hoping that you can help me understand the difference between chasing a stock or just buying a few shares at a time when it's going up or well, going down. Okay, so look, chasing a stock, we see a stock say up three percent, five percent, seven percent, five. Well, then you're clearly chasing it. I like to be able to buy a little bit and then wait till it comes down. And then the worst thing that happens is it runs away, and then you can ring the register. It's really that simple. I try to keep it simple. Lee in Virginia, Lee. We are, Jim. I've heard you talk about the S&P oscillator as a reliable indicator of overbought or oversold market conditions. Since this tool is specifically an S&P 500 indicator, I'm wondering if there's a similar tool for the NASDAQ 100. More importantly, how reliable is it for predicting if an individual stock is overbought or oversold, and what indicators are there that an individual stock might buck the trend and continue to go higher when the market is overbought or keep going lower. Okay, ever since the the mid-80s, I've been paying the S&P company uh, a fee in order to be able to get both their oscillator, which shows you whether there's too much buying pressure, too much selling pressure, and individual stock charts, which are now sent electronically. Uh, They are uh, S&P because it's the S&P company, and that's all I, I use it for. I want to be very careful here. Um, I get it. I pay for it. I can't give it out. That wouldn't be right to the S&P company. But I find it invaluable because when the S&P oscillator goes above five, it makes me feel like that things have gotten too, uh, let's say, bullish. And when it goes below five, things have gotten too bearish. And it may be time to take some action, obviously, counter to those trends. John and Marilyn, John. Hi, Jim. Great to talk to you and always a big fan. Oh, thank you very much. I wanted to ask a question about my 401k allocation mix. Certainly. We hear so much about dialing down risk, success rates of portfolio mix, and retirement, and the smoke and mirrors about historical returns should be used as a proxy for future returns. Right. So I'm thoroughly confused, Jim. I'm about three to five years out from retirement and historically have invested in equities at the 70 to 90% level for over 25 years. But this year, I dialed it down to 55% equities and 45% treasuries. How would you structure a portfolio now and in retirement? Okay. Also, should I consider rolling these monies over to have more choices in retirement as I have limited opportunities in my employer? I want you to have as many choices. I think that retirement is almost a false dichotomy. I think that the issue here is uh, long, long life 
and uh, life expectancy. And you may retire, but you need to have your money continue to work for you. I like your breakdown. That's one I would share. But we all have to have our own views, uh, optimistic or pessimistic or uh, let's say constructive or a little less more cautious. And then uh, tailor your suitability. In other words, don't be rolling the dice if you think you're going to need the money within the next couple of years. All right, I know Wall Street gibberish can be very hard to maneuver. I'm here to make it possible for you to do so. Oh, man, tonight, feel like the ticker is speaking in tongues? I'm helping you translate the terminology starting with the P-E ratio. And the vocabulary lesson doesn't end there. I'm telling you what defines the short-term stock picking you see in this market. And a deceptively simple term that you may not understand. I'll reveal it just ahead. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. Tonight I'm helping you translate the cryptic and occasionally unfathomable terminology that makes owning stocks so darn difficult. I'm giving you the phrase book to navigate your way through the world of investing. Uh, let's say uh, the Michelin Guide defines stock diving. Consider it the televised encyclopedia Kramerica for tearing back the cloak of mystery that can make managing your own money seem like such an impossible task. The process of picking stocks shouldn't seem as difficult as, say, conducting triple bypass heart surgery of yourself. You shouldn't have to be Stephen Hawking or, or Albert Einstein to understand this stuff, although uh, with a lot of the pros talk about stocks, I bet even Einstein would have a tough time figuring out what the heck they were saying. Now, I just explained the difference between cyclical companies, think industrial smokestack businesses that need a healthy economy in order to grow their earnings, versus secular growth names, think toothpaste, uh, cornflakes, that consistently expand at about the same pace, regardless of where we are in the business cycle. You want to lighten up on your cyclical holdings and double down on the secular growth names when the economy starts to slow. Uh, then do the reverse when it picks up steam. This is the playbook that all the hedge funds use. And even though hedge funds can often behave like herd animals, wildebeest who all buy and sell the same stocks at the same time, their playbook still works. And I don't want you to be trading on and out, and it's okay to buy and do homework. But at least you need you to understand why we have these rotations, what they mean. Now, the reason for this has to do with another piece of Wall Street gibberish lexicon that you absolutely must know if you're going to pick your own stocks. This is something I taught when I worked at Goldman Sachs. It's called the price to earnings multiple, also known as the P.E. multiple or just the multiple. They all refer to the same thing. And it's the cornerstone of how we value stocks and compare them against each other. Whenever you hear talking heads pontificate about how some stock has become overvalued or undervalued, well, they're really talking about the price earnings multiple. When you hear someone say that Pepsi is more expensive than Coke, they don't mean that Coke is cheap when it could be trading in, say, the 50s, while Pepsi is pricey when it's trading in, say, let's call it the 130s. 
The share price tells you nothing about a stock's valuation vis-a-vis another stock. To make any kind of apples-to-apples comparison, you have to take a step back and look at the multiple. And I know this isn't easy. I know that my mom always got confused when I was at Goldman. She always tried to figure out whether one stock was more expensive than the other based on the dollar amount. And that was not right. So you got to think about it like this. When you buy a stock, you're actually paying for a small piece of a company's future earnings stream. So to value a stock, you have to look at where the trading it's trading relative to the earnings per share, EPS, which you'll often see rendered as the EPS line. And that's what the multiple lets you do. Okay, so here's the basic algebra. It's not even math. It's something any fourth grader could match. The share price, letter P, equals the earnings per share, E times the multiple M. The multiple tells you how much investors are willing to pay for a company's earnings. It's the most basic form of valuation analysis. A stock that sells for 20 times earnings is cheaper than a stock that sells for 25 times earnings. Or to put it another way, the multiple is the special source of valuation. The main ingredient in that sauce, growth. How much bigger the earnings will be next year than this year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and so on. The stocks of companies with faster growth tend to get rewarded with higher price earnings multiples. Why? Remember, the multiple is all about what we're willing to pay for future earnings. And the more rapidly a business grows, the bigger its earnings will be a few years down the road. So let's just take one. Let's take a fast score like Chipotle. Okay? Let's say it's trading at more than 40 times earnings. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it more expensive than a slow but steady grower like a PepsiCo if it's trading at something like 22 times earnings because that's not relative. You have to make it relative. Chipotle deserves the bigger price earnings multiple because it has a much, much higher growth rate. Now, here's where it really does get interesting. Multiples aren't static. In different markets, people will pay more or less for the same amount of earnings. When they pay more, we call that multiple expansion. And when they pay less, it's called multiple contraction. Two more items that sound much more complicated than they really are. That's what hedge funds are trying to gain when they play a sector rotation. Of course, the earnings aren't static either. When you buy a stock, you're either making a bet that the E or the M part of the price equation is headed higher. So what goes into the earnings? How do you make sure that they're increasing and they aren't about to collapse? Okay, here's some more vocabulary. When you hear people talking about a company's bottom line or profits or net income, they all mean the same thing, earnings. We call it the bottom line because the number is the bottom figure on a company's income statement. Figure out, uh, to figure out how quickly a company's earnings could grow in the future, you have to look for clues when it reports its quarterly results. That's why I'm always telling you to listen to those darn conference calls. Finding clues means you looking at, you're looking at the top line. Another unnecessary piece of Wall Street gibberish is totally interchangeable with revenues or sales again. They all mean the same thing. I'm sorry, it's so confusing. You want to see strong revenue growth, which tells you there's demand for a company's product? This is ultimately the key to sustainable long-term earnings growth. And that's why it's especially important for younger, smaller companies to have fast-growing revenues. Oh, and investors will really pay up for accelerating revenue growth. We make a little joke called ARG, A-R-G, accelerating revenue growth which means the sales are rising at a faster and faster rate. With a more mature company, it should be able to turn its revenues into profits by cutting costs and then return those profits to you, the shareholder, in the form of a dividend or buyback or both. What else? It's also crucial to consider something that I find most important when I'm analyzing stocks for you on this show, which is called the gross margin. It's in no way disgusting, and not the least bit margin. Gross margin tells you what percentage of every dollar of sales a company hangs on to after accounting for its cost of goods sold. It's super important to figure out how much money a company can really make. To get a sense of where the gross margin might be headed, you have to consider the competition, the cost of production, the cost of doing business in general. 
Businesses with cutthroat competition like the supermarkets or the airlines, well, these tend to have really terrible margins because these guys are always shooting at each other. While a company with little competition, let's use Microsoft, has margins that some people think are downright obese. Some industries, the margins can vary widely. The oil business where the margins swing up and down with the price of crude. So here's the bottom line. You need to know the vocabulary before you can evaluate a stock. When you're comparing, look at the price to earnings multiple, the P.E. multiple, the growth rate, the top line, the bottom line, and the gross margin when you're trying to figure out which stocks are worth owning and which stocks are worth sell, sell, sell. Stick with Craig. I'm going into pen and teller mode. I'm demystifying all that technical sounding Wall Street gibberish. So you hear constantly and translating the most overused, underexplained terms in the investing lexicon in the language that you can comprehend. So let me tell you a dirty little secret. You know why all this investing terminology seems so impenetrable? Because the professionals who speak authentic Wall Street gibberish, well, let's just say they're fluent and they don't want it to be penetrable. They seem impenetrable. They want you terrified, and finally, they want you ignorant. Sell, sell, sell. Or at a complete loss when it comes to managing your own money. And that way, you'll be more willing to pay their fees and commissions. I know that's cynical, but you get my point. And judging by what I often read on Twitter at Jim Cramer, these arrogant self-centered money managers, well, they're winning. That's where I come in. Unlike them, I don't want your money. I'm not out here talk to my book. The only stocks I own are part of a charitable trust that you can follow by joining the ActionLifeplus.com club. I can't take profits in them. They have to go to charity. I used to play for the other team. Now I play for you. With that in mind, let's keep translating. I've got another ultra important yet rarely explained piece of verbiage that gets tossed around constantly. Risk reward. The risk-reward analysis pretty much defines the short-term stock picking that all the professionals do. So what do we mean here? Let's break it down into component parts. Assessing risk is all about figuring out the downside. How much do you potentially stand to lose in a given stock? How far it can conceivably fall in the near term? Assessing the reward, on the other hand, is all about figuring out the potential upside. How many points of gains the stock could reasonably give you? Too many people only focus on the upside when they evaluate a stock. That's a grave, grave mistake. It's much more important for you to understand the risk side of the risk reward because the pain from a big loss hurts a whole lot more than the pleasure from an equivalent size gain. Remember, the losses, it's the way our brains are are wired. The losses just hurt more and they do tend to blind you. So how exactly do we figure out this risk-reward thing I'm talking about? Okay, these are determined by two different cohorts of investors. The reward, the upside, is defined by how much growth-oriented money managers would, could be willing to pay for a stock. They create the ceiling. The risk, the downside, is created by what value-oriented money managers would be willing to pay on the way down. And they create the floor. I am, yes, oversimplifying your degree, but i got to get you to understand this stuff. To figure out the risk, you need to consider where the value guys might start buying on the way down. To solve for the reward, you have to think about where even the most bullish of growth guys will start their selling. Sell, 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 sell. When asked, I usually boil the risk reward down to something quick and dirty, like five up, three down. But how do I get there? How can you know where growth man- money managers will start selling and where value guys will start buy, buy, buy. doing their buying? Okay, to do that, you need some insight into how these guys think. And that requires translating another piece of esoteric Wall Street lingo, growth at a reasonable price, a.k.a. GARP 
for sure. When we talk about growth at a reasonable price, that's not a subjective criteria. It's a method of analyzing stocks first popularized by the legendary money manager Peter Lynch by comparing a stock's growth rate to its price during multiple. If you want to figure out the maximum that the growth guys would be willing to pay for a stock, you need to be able to look at the world according to GARP. You want to learn more from Peter Lynch? Go to Amazon and buy One Up on Wall Street, One Up on Wall Street, and Beat the Street. These are two most important books when investing that anyone's ever written. I've read them both many times. When it comes to growth at a reasonable price, here's my quick and dirty rule of thumb. A rule that can help us figure out when a stock is overvalued or undervalued based on what these two groups of money managers would be willing to pay for the stocks. Let's say a stock is a price earnings multiple that's lower than its growth rate. Then that stock is probably cheap. Although, of course, there are always some major exceptions. Flip side, if the price earnings multiple is twice the size of the growth rate or greater, well, I think you should probably sell it. Again, I think. And that's because there are exceptions, and there's some people who are more aggressive than I am. In other words, if something's trading at, say, 20 times earnings, and the stock has a, the company has a 10% growth rate, then it's likely at or near its peak because it's reached the two times growth ceiling that I regard as a safety zone. While we're on the subject, here's another piece of Wall Street gibberish that can help simplify this process. What's known as the PEG ratio, P-E-G, PEG ratio. That's the price to earnings to growth rate or the multiple divided by a stock's long-term growth rate. When you view the market through the lens of growth at a reasonable price, a PEG of one or less is extremely cheap and two or higher I regard as prohibitively expensive. Of course, when you get fresh-faced companies with ultra-fast revenue growth and not much in the way of earnings, this whole analysis goes out the window. But for most stocks, the rubric works. Now, that former kind I just say, well, you can throw it out the window. We frequently see those, say, IPOs, these companies that have all the fastest growth, and people willing to own them for a long time. And they're looking at, say, the peg ratio out four, five, six years. That's not what we do on the show. So where do I come up with these numbers? I use observation. The value investors will be attracted to stocks selling at uh, peg rates of one or less. They create the floor. You'll usually be able to find a buyer if the stock's multiples at or below its growth rate, unless there's something very wrong and you suspect the earnings estimates are unreliable. Meanwhile, the growth investors who'd be buying high multiple stocks rarely pay more than twice growth, a peg of two which means there's almost no way the stock's going to go higher. Unless we're talking about companies where Wall Street doesn't care about the earnings. Then again, those are those fast-growing companies that I just mentioned. Of course, like with any rule of thumb, this one's a rough approximation. It's useful, especially when you're trying to figure out the risk warp, but it's not always right. A lot of times the stock will get cheap based on its earnings estimates, simply because those estimates need to be cut like the banks and brokers right before the financial crisis. Or it will look cheap relative to its growth rate. But that's because the growth rate is slowing. In these cases, the stock could trade well below the one times growth floor. Its pay could just keep sinking and sinking. It's a very unsettling feeling. And the fact that it looks cheap is not a buy signal. It's a value trap. On the other hand, the best time to buy cyclical stocks, think the smokestack industrial kind, is when their price earnings multiples look outrageously expensive because the earnings estimates are way too low and need to be raised to catch up with reality. In other words, all this growth at a reasonable price stuff only holds uh, while you have a clear read on the future earnings. If you think the numbers are headed much higher or much lower, or you have to throw this, uh, you have to throw this whole playbook out the window. And that's very important. So in other words, there's a level of subjectivity that I'm, I, I need to work into this analysis uh, because it's not cut and dry. Oh, and one other thing about risk. When you hear the terms risk on and risk off about stocks, well, that is real chipper. So I want you to ignore that. I actually think that's just put on earth to make you feel stupid. 
Yeah, it steers regular investors into trading like banshees to buy aggressive stocks or switch to bonds. It's nonsense. It's the kind of thing that I wish we could ban. Bottom line, know what you own and know what others will pay for. That means you need to understand the risk reward, the potential downside and potential upside before you purchase anything by figuring out where the growth investors put in the ceiling and where the value cohort creates the floor. Tom in California. Tom. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. This is Tom from Dublin, California. Excellent. Jim, what percentage of my portfolio would you recommend in gold? And is GLD the best way to do it, or would you I, go with I think different? 10 to 20% is what I like. 20% being as uh, if you're really cautious. 10 is just kind of like the, you know, that's the deductible. Remember, I regard it as insurance. Uh, why do I do this? Why do I have it? Because I think, and I am a, a risk-averse person. And while there are many people who feel like, well, wait a sec, this show's a trading show, which of course it is not, I like to have something in insurance at all times, just like I would with a car, just like I would with a home. Let's go to Lily in New York, please. Lily! Hi, Kramer. Hey, it's Lily. nice to talking to you. Same. Um, I want to ask you a question. Okay. Okay. If you have an IRA, I'm retired, and right. I have a 30% of my whole portfolio in the IRA, what is the uh, what is your opinion? All right. Well, I mean, IRA you can own individual stocks. I don't want um, any more than I, I don't want you to be mutual fund, which would be owning more than ten stocks. I don't want you to be uh, undiversified, which to me, on a shorthand basis, is own fewer than five. So that's the sweet spot. Uh, one of the reasons why I created ActionLearnsPlus.com and uh, the club is to help you pick which ones of those ten you might want to own. It's a teaching tool, and I think it can help you. Michael in New Jersey, Michael. Hey, Jim, thank you very much for taking my call. Of course. My son is uh, 25 years old. He's right. uh, self-employed. He's uh, saved up $50,000 for him. to start his 401k uh, retirement plan. He's not in the market today. He does not have a retirement plan today. How should he invest his first $50,000 to be diversified and over what period of time? Okay, uh, when you're in your 20s, you have your whole life to make the money back. That's why you should take as much risk as possible. For, not, for a 401k, <coughs> let me be very clear. There are always options that have the most risk. In the 20s, you adopt those. And as you get older, you take less risk and less risk and less risk. Anthony in Michigan, Anthony. Hey, how you doing? Um, I just want to know... I'm, uh, I'm a new investor, okay. and I want to know, is it good to invest in options or stick with stock or do both? As an investor, I want you to do common stock. Look, as you get more, uh, yeah, I don't want to necessarily say that options are riskier because they do cut up your downside. But let's start with common stock investing. And then over time, if you really get a feel for it and you want to own calls, there are lots of programs on uh, CNBC and lots of books that help you explain things. I wrote Getting Back to Even a while ago in order to have about 100 pages on options. And also my book, Real Money, has how to understand options. All right, understanding risk-reward is key. That means know what you own and what others will pay for it. Much more man money ahead, including two very different methods of attempting to profit in the market. I'm revealing the distinction, how it can impact your portfolio. Then... One of the most dreaded and poorly understood terms in this business is finally getting its due tonight. And send your tweets to me at Jim Kramer. I'm about to answer them on the show. Mad Money will be back after the break.
Managing your own money feels a whole lot less daunting when you have a translator. Someone like me who can help you decode the arcane terminology that the pros use to make the stock market sound, I think, incomprehensible. That's why I've been giving you my televised Wall Street gibberish to plain English dictionary to help you see through the mystery and understanding. I need you to understand the essentials of investing that are often so clouded by the gibberish. But just as there are tons of simple concepts that seem, uh, uh, seem misleadingly complicated, there are also plenty of complex concepts that disguise a ton of hidden complexity. Take the notion of a trade versus an investment. A lot of people would say these two words are interchangeable, and I hear it all the time, but that's, uh, that, that there's no difference. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Trading and investing are distinct. In the immortal words of those 90s stock gurus, the offspring, you got to keep them separated. Isn't this just splitting hair, something that's not recommended for the follicularly challenged like myself? Isn't it a casuist? Casuistry. That's an SAT word of the day that might send you searching for a real dictionary. No, a trade is not the same as an investment. And if you treat the one like the other, if you turn a trade into an investment, breaking the first commandment of trading from real money, one that I think is really incredible. No, that's confessions, but you can't really read it in that language. Here we go. Uh, Say investing inside world, then in true Mr. T fashion. A lot of the best of the Rockies by far, right? Isn't that the best one? Rocky 3, my prediction for your portfolio, is pain. pain. You've got to understand the difference between two. And we're going to explain it to you. When you buy a stock as a trade, you're buying it for a specific catalyst. Some anticipated future event that you believe will drive the stock price higher. Maybe the underlying company is about to report its quarterly results, and you think it'll deliver better than expected numbers. Although I don't recommend trying to game earnings. It's really hard. Too much chaos, too much confusion, which can cause the stock to get clobbered even when it delivers stellar numbers and leave you kind of thinking that maybe you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Maybe you're predicting some kind of event. For example, if you're dealing with drug stocks, that could be the presentation of an important clinical trial data or news about an FDA decision. If you bet on a positive catalyst and it goes your way, well, that's how you get a winning trade. The key distinction, when you make a trade, you know going into it that there's a moment to buy before the catalyst and a moment to sell, which is after the catalyst. Sometimes your trades won't work out. Maybe the event you're hoping for doesn't happen. Maybe the data point you were hoping for comes in we could have expected. Either way, when you buy a stock as a trade, it has a limited shelf life. There's only a brief window where you want to own it. Once the window closes, well, guess what? You've got to sell, sell, sell. With a good trade, your catalyst goes your way. The stock goes higher and you can rack up nice gains. There's no point in sticking around, though. You have to ring the register and lock in your profits before they evaporate. This is why I urge most home gamers to avoid trading in the first place. Unless you're managing money as a full-time job, it's very hard to be nimble enough to be a good trader. The time horizon is just too short. You're busy working. How can you do this and work? What if a trade doesn't go your way? Well, then you still need to sell. Win or lose, you only plan to be in the game for a limited period of time. When you buy a bottle of milk, You don't drink it after the expiration date, do you? You throw it away. The logic of trading is the same. You can't just buy more and call it a longer-term investment because without the catalyst, you have no reason to own the darn stock in the first place. And you should never, ever, never should you own anything without a reason. I've watched an endless parade of people lose money by turning trades into investments. They come up with alibis for staying in a stock long after its expiration date because they want to fool themselves into believing that they didn't make a mistake. More often than not, these people end up getting crushed. So remember, without a catalyst, you don't have a trade. 
If you ever find yourself in that position, it is time to cut your losses. Don't be afraid to take the loss because it's already a loss. So how is that different from an investment? Investments are much more open-ended. They don't have a limited shelf life, and you can stick around for years. That's because an investment is based on a long-term thesis. You invest in a company when you believe it can make you serious money over an extended period of time. You're not just banking on one specific catalyst. You're expecting many good things will happen in the company's not-too-distant future. Remember, though, homework, homework, homework. I can't stress this enough. While investing has a much longer uh, horizon than trading, that's no excuse to buy a stock and then just forget about it. Investments go wrong. Uh, And I'm always telling you, you need to spend time every single week doing homework on individual companies. But you know what? Buying homework and not buying hold has gotten easier because now there's all sorts of information available on the web. I'm no longer going to hold you to actually looking at things every single week, but it is important to pay attention. Now, as long as you are paying attention, when a stock that you like as an investment goes down, you know what? You can feel comfortable buying it into weakness. The corollary here is that you don't ring the registry for the first time an investment jumps in price. You're looking for longer gains, larger gains over a longer period of time. I know it can be tempting to take profits as soon as you have them, but if you're right about the fundamentals there, I'm going to tell you, you're going to kick yourself for being so hasty. Do you know we bought Apple for my travel trust way back in the pre-iPhone days when it was trading at just $26? Then we turned around and sold it after a quick five-point gain. Pitiful! We threw the investment thesis out the window for what turned out to be a microscopic profit over the long haul. So listen to me on this bottom line. Not all Wall Street gibberish is deceptively complicated. Some of it is deceptively simple, like the distinction between a trade and an investment. Remember that they're not the same. And it's a big mistake to turn a trade based on a catalyst, whether successful or unsuccessful, into an investment that's supposed to be based on a long-term thesis. Stick with Welcome back to the Mad Money Wall Street gibberish to plain English translation guide. All night I've been explaining arcane and esoteric bits of financial jargon to help you become a better investor and make the whole process of managing your money seem at least less daunting. So what else do you need to know? Okay, here's one of the most dreaded and poorly understood terms in the business. It's called the correction. Oh, what a euphemism. A correction is when a market that's been roaring higher turns around and crushes you. It's maybe a decline. Sometimes it's up to 10%. Make you feel like the sky is falling and you never want to own another stock in your life. A correction. And that's precisely the wrong reaction. It may feel horrible. But stocks can come back from corrections. They bounce back from big declines all the time, especially coming off a major run higher. Think of it like this. When the market goes on a 56-game hitting streak like Joe DiMaggio, and then it doesn't get on base the next day, that doesn't mean you'll never make money again. It doesn't mean all your holdings will be pulverized. It's just what happens when we go up too far too fast. Sooner or later, the streak comes to an end. Always happens. That's why you should expect corrections. They can happen to an individual stock, an index, the whole market. They can even happen to bonds. And you'll probably never see them coming. So don't beat yourself up for failing to see them coming. Sellers are a natural feature of the stock market landscape. We don't have to like them, but we do have to acknowledge that they're going to happen no matter what, which is why you shouldn't get flustered or worse, panic when they inevitably smack you in the face. And I see so much panic every time we go down a couple of percent. Finally, I've got one last piece of investing vocabulary that you, that you, you got to master. It's the idea of 
Execution. This is a tough one because it's comparatively subjective. But when we talk about execution, we mean management's ability to follow through with its plans. When you own a stock, there are all kinds of risks associated with execution. Messed up mergers, failed new product launches, bad cost controls. The number of ways a bad management team can screw up a company is practically infinite. That's why I like companies with proven management teams, because they're much less likely to make these kind of unforced errors. That's a big reason why it's so important for you to pay attention when I bring CEOs on the show. Nobody knows a company better than the people who are running it. And since you probably can't get those CEOs on the phone yourself, you want to see what they have to say here about their business firsthand on the show, which is why I book them. Why does execution matter? Simple. It's part of the reason why we pay up for the stocks of best-of-breed companies with terrific track records. Best-of-breed stocks are almost always cheaper than their competitors, but they're usually worth the price. You see, in other words, let me just make this understood. An expensive stock that's best-of-breed will turn out to be inexpensive in the end. See, a good management team is less likely to make mistakes and, more important, less likely to get buried by big problems and more likely to figure out how to solve them. So we'll pay up for those stocks of, of companies that have those management teams. The bottom line, please don't be afraid of corrections or intimidated by people who use the word. A sharp sell-off after a big rally is something to be expected. And remember, even though it's hard to quantify Execution is a crucial factor when it comes to picking stocks. You want companies with proven seasoned management teams that are less likely to drop the ball. Stay with Kramer. Interactive show. You know I love hearing from you, Kramerica. So why don't we take some tweets? First up, uh, we've got a tweet from at Bren Triv, who asks, I put my first 10K in S&P 500 fund, but I want to know, do you continue to add money to it or do you just leave it as is? Thank you. Hashtag booyah. Oh, no. Keep adding. Keep adding. Keep adding. That's how great wealth is created, by constantly adding and compounding. Constantly adding, compounding. That's what I'm always going to recommend. If I've done that one thing on this show, then I've done good. All right, next we have at Brian Rostin 8 who says, hey, at Jim Kramer, my wife and I just had two beautiful twins. I want to start college savings funds. Any advice on firms, special types of index funds or services? Thanks. Hashtag mad tweets. Simple, simple, simple. S&P index funds. That way you won't have to think about it. You'll just do S&P. You won't have to say, well, hold on. Where's this fund? What's that fund? What should I add? I like to keep it simple. And later on, as you get more uh, established, if you want to do something more abstruse, is fine. But I always like to keep it simple, even though I know people always seem to want me to make it complicated. And at Beard 76 has a bone to pick with me. How could you hate Reese's Pieces? Hashtag man tweets at man money on CBC. Okay, listen to me. I think that peanuts and chocolate should have nothing to do with each other. My mother liked Reese's Pieces. I never understood it. It's probably the only thing I ever disagreed on with my mom. But she was wrong. All right, here's a tweet from at Nomad2003, who says, at Jim Kramer, hashtag man tweets, please give a little education on buying, selling bonds for us older folks to be more conservative during this market. Does one have to hold to maturity or any time? Okay, look, again, I used to sell individual bonds, trade individual bonds, buy individual bonds. No, we're going to use very simple. 
if you decide that you're going to want to own treasuries, you'll own you'll buy treasuries from a bank. Otherwise, what we'll do is just buy bond funds. Uh, don't go long term on bond funds. They can be a little bit dicey, uh, given the fact that interest rates will kind of stay, stay low. But the main thing is use funds. I keep why am I continuing to say funds if for the rest of the show I'm not saying funds is because there's two components to mad money. There is the index fund and then there are the individual stocks. And I still think the vast repository should be index funds because you don't have the time to do what I'm doing. But I still think you have time for individual stocks. Remember, 401k is always going to be funds because they don't let you own the stocks. And now a tweet from at Eric underscore Nag, who says at Mad Money on CBC at Jim Kramer. What do you recommend when we do drips now that there are no commission fees for buying stocks? Hashtag Mad Tweets, hashtag Mad Tweets. Hey, dividend reinvestment. Glorious. Glorious. Again, how you make big money. I remember my dad had this friend. He came back from the war and he just kept reinvesting Merck. And he, he, he died a, a, a multi, multi-millionaire. Never knew it. But he just did dividend reinvestment work. Dividend And it, it always, from when I was a little boy, struck me as a great way to make money. And it is. Now we have a question from Brett in Tampa, who asked, my 401k got obliterated. Long story, so just have Social Security. Not sure I want to do a 401k yet. I'm 59. Do I have any good retirement options at this point? Hashtag mad tweets. Uh, mad tweets hashtag mad money. Um, I don't want to say you have nothing. I, I do want to point out that um, there's lots of ways to be able to just save. I mean, just save money. It doesn't have to be protected from the tax person. Saving with good stocks and good funds works whether it's protected or not from the tax man. Stick with Craig. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you next time. I am looking for a Dr. Kramer education here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Mr. Kramer, it is an honor. I've been watching your show for about 10 years. Long-time, first-time, love your show, and it's time to write another book, Jimmy. I want to give a big shout-out to my dad who turned me on to you long ago. My dad turned me on to your show. Thank you for all you do. Thank you so much for everything you do. To be a grand investor, you need to break the Wall Street code, and I'm here to help. people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.